You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 7 Devil May Care. Hello, and welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Ryan Connell. And I'm Josh Madison. This week has a pretty awesome theme to it. Today, we are going to be talking about the Prince of Darkness. Mephistopheles. Slewfoot. Lucifer. Beelzebub. Uh, uh, George Burns in that one movie. Yes. Brothers and sisters, today we invite you to consider the devil. Our first segment today starts where conversations about the devil usually end up at some point. We, uh, we're going to feature an investigation of Norwegian black metal. It's called black metal music and encourages devil worship and the desecration of churches. So I have a few um, acquaintances who are Satanists themselves, but they're not really, I mean, they're not really into this music. They're, they're into what jazz. Kind of <laughs> they're into jazz. It's the, it's the strangest thing. I am Mike Coletta. Uh, I have a blog called The Black Meddler, which is uh, blackmeddler.wordpress.com. I talk about my uh, obsessive love of black metal, and um, there are some philosophical ramblings, there are some uh, tirades and uh, things like that, but it's all within the vein of black metal. I often tell people I'm not an expert, I just have a soapbox. When I was in high school, like I was crazy into the alternative scene and had really no heavy metal aspirations outside of what MTV played. Um, and then one day when I was working in the mall at Sam Goody, there was, uh, there was Demu Borgir's Death Called Armageddon with a gigantic pentagram sitting on the front of it. And I swallowed hard, went in, bought it, and then that was really the beginning of the end. It was just so different from what else um, I had heard on the radio or what I was listening to at the moment that after that, I just pretty much dove straight in um, and listened to anything and everything I could get my hands on. Black metal as a genre is going to have to fit all of these different, you know, it has to have a look, has to have a sound, and then it has to have a theme. The band member is dressed completely in black. Um, black leather, black jeans, you know, combat boots, etc. They put on this this white makeup on their face called corpse paint, and then they usually draw like either darkened circles around their eyes or their mouth, or sometimes in rather elaborate patterns all over their face. They then, of course, will have usually down the arms and legs those sort of rows of spikes. Some of them as small as the little studs. Others, you, they look like homemade like gauntlets that they have pushed nails through. So they're these big kind of, you know, know, spiky affair. I don't know how else to describe it. They, They look like, you know, sort of porcupines that are missing big sections of themselves. 
the other thing too, especially for the Norwegians, they always set themselves out in nature, um, particularly contrasted with either the forest or with some sort of snow background. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's meant to be like a very aggressive kind of menacing look. I would say it has a lot of connotations or has a lot of connections to punk in that, you know, the leather jacket, the the combat boots, the kind of, you know, that, that I wouldn't, I don't want to say sinister, but definitely that like, you know, we don't care how we look. We know we don't look like you, et cetera. It's just the hair, you know, they don't, they don't ever do the, the mohawks. At least I haven't seen a black metal mohawk yet. Yeah, the, so the sound, um, on one hand, it's this fast-paced kind of, um, the guitars have this, they often call it the wasp swarm. So if you get, you know, if you have bees in your backyard and you get too close, that kind of constant buzzing, that they, they've mimicked their guitars to have that same kind of sound. On the same token, though, so they've got this really fast swarming guitar sound, but they'll often be this sort of mid-tempo pace. So it's not all blazingly fast. It's not speed metal exactly. Um, it actually has it has some um, some pace to it. It actually has some almost some discipline with how slow it can it can go sometimes. Like what I was saying earlier, I think it's the most dynamic of the groups or of the genres because it doesn't have to you know doom metal has to be slow. Like, speed metal has to be fast. Death metal has to be technical. Like, black metal doesn't have to be any of those things. It can be any of those things. Doesn't have to, though. Satan is obviously a theme. So is this sort of anti-Christianity. Paganism is a big theme. And it's sort of all in this, this, this contrary spirit. So I would almost say, in my opinion, and I talk about this a lot in my blog, rebellion is the theme of black metal. Like, kind of like what Marlon Brando said, you know, what are you rebelling? What do you got? That's pretty much it. So I, I really think that black metals at its core is about rebellion. And it's about the emotion of that rebellion. They don't often write songs about how they would burn a church. They rather write songs about the reason why they would burn the church. The entire movement, the, the music scene, its biggest punch was the Norwegian scene. Um, in the early and mid-90s. Bands like uh, Mayhem, Dark Throne, Burzum, a whole bunch of others started uh, burning churches. Um, a few murders were even linked to black metal. Um, and it wasn't just in Norway. Norway was kind of the first to do it, but Poland had a series of church arson and arson um, attacks. So did Germany, so did Sweden, so did England. This is the type of music believed to be responsible for a wave of attacks on churches in Northern Europe. Called black metal music, it's overtly anti-Christian and synonymous with satanic worship. This church in Bergen, Norway, was burned to the ground. Truthfully, within the Norwegian scene, it was just two guys. It was the lead singer of Burzum, Vard Vikanes, and it was the um, lead guitarist of um, Mayhem. It was Euronymous. Both of them, more so Vikanes, really believed had this these strong anti-Christian sentiments. And so in particular, um, he targeted the um, Norwegian um, stave churches, those old wooden um, Viking churches. So they really targeted them because they, they saw it as like an adulteration of their culture. Um, so they, he, I should say he, really had this anti-Christian um, sentiment to him. 
And so for him, I wouldn't even say that he was Satanist. He was just anti-Christian. Um, but since they they went with the whole um, imagery of um, you know dressing in black with the the white corpse paint um, on their faces, you know the, the the spikes all up and down the arm, and of course inverted crosses, um, inverted crosses that were lit on fire, um, pentagrams, all this stuff. It really um, it gave this look of overt Satanism, and then of course when Vikernes, um, I think. He's responsible for burning close to 11 churches, but I think Norway, which had the highest number, lost around 47 churches. Um, So um, it wasn't, again, full-on Satanism, but it was definitely this anti-Christian sentiment. Um, After a while, though, it sort of switched where Vikernes and Aronimus said, the only way that you're ever really a true black metal band is if you go out and burn a church. So a lot of these newcomers, these new kids who want to be accepted by this group had to go out and burn churches with them. So it soon turned into a ritual of, of a rite of passage. The lead singer of Burzum killed the lead guitarist of Mayhem. It, it really boils down to just a feud that they had. I think someone owed someone money. Um, they were having, you know, fights about who was going to release what on their label. I mean, really, it's like when you actually dig into it, it's it's not terribly exciting. Um, Vikernes uh, accused Euronymous of owing him some money and that they weren't going to release their album until he gets his money back. So he goes over. He claims that, you know, he stabbed him in the head um, in self-defense, but then he was also stabbed 30 more times. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, that it's, it's self-defense, but really, like, um, when that happened, not only did it within the scene sort of make Euronymous this saint-like figure, this this martyr of black metal, um, but that's when it really, for the mainstream public and for the press, like hit the stop button because now this is something we need to take seriously. There were a few other murders. Um, there was a murder of a groupie down in Germany by a black metal. Um, I think it was the drummer. So, I mean, there's just been sort of isolated incidences here and there. None of them have ever been sort of like ritualized as a part of a satanic ritual. Um, But just given with the whole image that they had put off, plus the church burnings, now there's murder. My God, we have to put a stop to this. I kind of think after the the second wave, after the death of Euronymous, after the you know um, imprisonment of uh, Vikernes and all of the others who had killed people, um, the scene just kind of it it morphed into well, it became mainstream. I think was the real thing that probably killed it <laughs> is that it actually became profitable. Black metal in Norway actually can win Grammys and in Sweden as well and has. So I think. Probably that's what's killed it more than anything else. I'm sure the, what was it? Was it Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols? I'm sure he probably has a lot to say about Good Charlotte, but, you know, there was nothing he could do to prevent it. And I think the same thing is true, you know, that that if you were to ask Fenris of, of Dark Throne, you know, he would have loved to have stopped um, some of the bands that are now black metal bands. But, you know, 
that's one of the things I think after that big, huge surge of energy that, you know, became violent and, and deadly, life finds a way. So it found its new way in, in the mainstream. So, and that's where I think black metal thankfully still has a saving grace because a lot of, I mean, and even recent groups that are still producing black metal, um, it's pretty, it's good. So they still have like, there's still a spark of creativity in there. And it might not be the same thing, you know, it might look different or even sound different to some way, but it's still, it's not like, uh, you know, this black metal used to be cool back in the day, but you know, I mean, and there are some bands where you think like, yeah, this is not for me. But for the most part, I think it still is hopeful because there still is a, there still is that creative element to it. Um, and even though you can make it mainstreamed, I'm not, I just don't believe it can ever really be mainstreamed. curious about black metal or just want to hear more from Mr. Mike Coletta, check out his blog at blackmedler.wordpress.com. That's blackmedler, M-E-D-D-L-E-R.wordpress.com. And hey, swing by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit and tell us about your favorite iteration of Satan in pop culture. My personal favorite is Vigo Mortensen in Prophecy, a not a very good movie, but I like him in it. Uh, I also like that the devil is an elevator in the movie Devil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an elevator, <laughs> Yeah, I think. Sure. I, that's That seems like a thing that he would do. I never saw it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also have a non-devil-related Instagram account. It's um, weird stuff that we like. Our screen name there, not surprisingly, is Denver Orbit. Now we're going to take a brief break from our diabolic dialogue and listen to a song that we still think is a hell of a good time. Everybody likes a pun. <laughs> uh, except for me when I say them. <laughs> it's a song called Midnight Crisis from Blanket Empire.
Blanket Empire just released their first album, Hymns for the Heartless, which you can find at Spotify and CD Baby. And they also have a free show coming up here at Mutiny Books on November 18th. Now back to the devil. Friend of the show and contributor Alessandro Ragason thinks that the guy has a bad rap and wants to set the record straight. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Satan, from John Milton's Paradise Lost, Book 1, line 263. When my older brother Mark was a boy, he had an imaginary friend. This wasn't any imaginary friend, this was Littlefoot, the young brontosaurus from the consummate cartoon classic, The Land Before Time. Mark and Littlefoot did everything together. They played together, they talked with each other, and they were notorious for trashing Mark's room together. Only, this wasn't the story my brother would tell my mom. Mark frequently blamed his misbehavings and room trashings on Littlefoot, to which my mother would reply, Well, Littlefoot is your friend, so you are responsible for him and have to clean up after him. A backfiring response which even my clever brother probably wasn't expecting. This is one of those stories told again and again whenever my family hangs out together. It's a classic that gets everyone laughing and wisecracking. I mean, blaming an imaginary cartoon dinosaur for one's misdeeds certainly deserves a chuckle, but doesn't it kind of resonate with all of us in some way? Not necessarily the dinosaur part, but the shame of wrongdoing and the desire to load the burden onto something or someone else? And isn't it even better if that something or someone can't be seen, heard, or felt, but is instead some sort of monstrous, vile, tricksy evildoer? Oh, but of course. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the devil. He's a character of many names and equally as many forms. Satan, devil, Mephistopheles, prince of darkness, revealed as snakes, frogs, cloven-hooved monsters, and perhaps most terrifyingly of all, as humanoid. Generally referred to as male, but appearing in stacks of stories as female, the devil is regarded, at least in the Western world, as humankind's preeminent foe, the great deceiver and destroyer. Stick with me here, but what all has the devil done to deserve such titles, such disdain? I'm going out on a limb here and assuming that most people have heard or read or know of the story of the Garden of Eden. 
It's a real classic, a chart-topping biblical hit. But let's recap. Adam and Eve are living in ignorant and perfect bliss when some talking snake comes along and convinces Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then share some with Adam. God then kicks them both out of Eden and condemns them and the rest of the human race to lives of suffering, and also curses the legs right off of snakes for all time. Many of us believe this snake to be the devil, but why? Flip open to Genesis and you'll see that it's only ever called a serpent or a snake. No devil anywhere. The idea that it was the devil in the garden is not quite biblical. Fast forward to England, 1667, where and when a blind man named John Milton is dictating a book called Paradise Lost to his daughters. He's the one who attributes the serpent to Satan. He's the one who turns the devil into a shapeshifter responsible for the demise of humanity. Whether we choose to ignore or accept this isn't really the issue. The main thing to consider is, what exactly was it that caused the demise? What was it that ruined humanity? Let's take a look at what really happened. Adam and Eve were ignorant thought slaves living under the thumb of a tyrant in a philosophically baffling garden that housed carnivores, omnivores, and herbivores, but was somehow perfect and free from any pain or strife. In slithers, or scuttles, a millipedal snake who begins to ask some interesting questions. Why would an all-knowing, perfectly loving God want to keep his creation from sharing in his infinite knowledge? If God didn't want them to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why did he put it in the garden? It's like letting loose two toddlers in a candy store and telling them they can eat everything except for the gummy bears of the knowledge of sugar and cartoons. God wants to keep his creation ignorant. He wants to keep them from free thought and autonomy. The devil wants to give them power of self-awareness and freedom. The power to not be just a character in God's Sims computer game. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven in the first place. Let's recap. We have a talking snake that's mainly attributed to the devil through the mythological writings of Milton and who just wants poor Adam and Eve to be able to think for themselves, acquire critical thinking and reasoning skills, and pursue knowledge. On top of all of this, he's chased out of heaven and sent to rule a miserable fiery abyss for the main reason that he thinks heaven could use a shakeup in the power structure after an eternity of being ruled by one guy who likes to be constantly praised and never questioned, a dictator. I can't say that makes him evil in my book. The rebellious angels blame Satan for leading the assault against heaven, Eve blames the serpent for making her eat the fruit, and thus begins Satan's legacy of evil. From the Garden of Eden and moving forward through time, the devil made me do it and subsequent variations, becomes a standard to get out of holding ourselves accountable for our own actions. If I can shuck off the blame for lying or cheating or stealing onto some mustache-twirling, crimson, goat-footed, sinister dark lord that no one has ever actually seen but that everyone believes in, why wouldn't I? Well, because I should be taking responsibility for it. Did Eve have to eat the fruit after her discussion with a talking leggy snake? No, but she did. The snake didn't put the fruit in her hands, bring it to her lips, force her to take a bite and swallow. When I was deep in the throes of fundamentalist Christianity, the devil didn't make me abuse my adopted sister, but it sure sounded a lot nicer than admitting I was angry, hateful, and jealous. It made it easier to sleep at night. Satan is laden with the role of ultimate scapegoat. As James Baldwin says, it has always been much easier, because it has always seemed much safer, to give a name to the evil without than to locate the terror within. 
The devil not only physically shapeshifts, but he also philosophically, theologically, and ideologically shapeshifts. He becomes whatever evil or badness the church feels like railing against at the time. At different times, he is represented or been blamed for feminism, science, inquiry, ambition, witchcraft, any religion other than Christianity, drinking, dancing, philosophy, self-care, living well, non-heterocentric identities and biologies, vegetarianism, tight yoga pants, infidelity, and so on ad nauseum. It's a bizarre and perplexing list, and it only gets weirder the more you dig in. As the church changes and reforms, so must what it considers evil. There's never been a constant for evil, just as there's never been a constant for good. Both are constantly in flux, ever being adapted and reshaped to fit with the zeitgeist. The devil is whatever the church needs him to be, and it is therefore hard to imagine that such a being actually exists. But I'm not here to convince anyone of the existence of the actual devil. What is most striking to me about the devil is that not only is he always true to his word, through the use of the infamous contract, he is also representative of being human. Like Nietzsche's madman in the marketplace or Zarathustra, many see the devil as nefarious for autonomy and self-actualization. Indulgence is demonized. What does this mean? No more treat yourself. Ambition is demonized, which leads to imprisoning minds in constant subservience. Living full, robust lives and exploring all dimensions of our humanness is vilified. Acting on natural urges that all humans have to probe into our sexuality and live sexually fulfilled lives becomes heinous and grotesque. Loving ourselves enough to speak up against injustice done to us becomes insubordination. Allowing ourselves to question anything and everything and to relentlessly pursue knowledge in all of its facets turns into an exercise in rebellion and the intentional infliction of pain on others. Call me crazy, but I can't understand what is wrong with becoming the best me that I can be through constant exploration, deep and intense self-reflection, and the rigorous exercising of my own demons. Pun only partially intended. And if those things lead me away from a dominant ideology, well stick a pitchfork in my hand and call me the devil. The line I quoted at the beginning of this segment is one of the most famous lines from Paradise Lost. Many see it as Satan admitting to being rebellious for the sake of being rebellious, similar to a child yelling at their parents after an argument that they wanted to go to their room the whole time. In Latin, this translates to nom servium. Retranslated into English, it means I will not serve. Sounds pretty selfish and defiant, I know. After pulling back the blanket of blind, unquestioning Christian ideology and servitude, though, it has a much more profound meaning. We read it as, I will not serve blindly. I will not lose myself and my nature to someone else entirely. I will not destroy and berate and degrade myself for the benefit of word-spinning, mind-controlling despots. I will not be Stockholmed. It is an assertion, a call to arms for the uplifting and edification of the human race. It is a banner to be flown in praise and acceptance of all that we are and all that we could be. It is our human cry to a dark and unknowable universe that we are here to exceed expectations for ourselves. It is the quiet voice, the flash of light traveling between neurons that aches and yearns for a life of meaning over a life of dull comfort and hollow ignorance. Nam servium. I will not serve. I will rule myself. If there was a garden, an Adam, and an Eve, and a talking snake that was Satan in disguise, I say thank you to that serpent. Without him, we would be but paper dolls.
a little girl should know. It's all about the devil, and I've learned to hate him so. She said he causes trouble when you let him in the room. He will never, ever leave you if your heart is filled with gloom. So let the sun shine in, face it with a grin. Alessandra Ragusin is a writer and regular contributor of the show. Her work explores everything from travel to cooking to feminism and more. Check out her website at agragusin.weebly.com. That's A-G-R-A-G-U-S-I-N.weebly.com. And that's going to do it for this week. If you'd like to keep us from selling our souls for fame, make sure to tell your friends about us and give us a review on iTunes. We are trying to save our souls at a time when we are really, really craving donuts. And we are always looking for submissions. So if you have a thing that you think would sound great on the show, like a story, comedy bit, song, poem, or anything else, send it our way. We can help with all the technical audio stuff, too. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Ryan Connell and myself, Josh Madison. And I'm also the guy that does uh, the editing and some sound design. We've got more great stuff coming soon, so make sure to subscribe. And as my grandma never used to say... We all hope you're in heaven a half hour before the devil knows you're dead. Face it with a grin. Open up your heart and let the sun shine in. If I forget to say my prayers, the devil jumps with glee. What kind of music do you think the devil listens to? Soft jazz. (laughs) Soft, soft, soft. Kenny G. Kenny G. What kind of music does God listen to? Ska. <laughs> ska. That or or Icelandic ska. Icelandic traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mighty Mighty Boss. <laughs> Good Charlotte. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a big fan of late nineties ska and punk. <laughs> really... Like like the offspring is really that was the peak. Yeah. That was the peak. Yeah. He loves that pretty fly. Yeah, Dexter Holland could pretty much like kill anyone and he's still coming to heaven. Yeah. yeah. Come on in here. Come on. Mall punk is his favorite. Mall punk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>